There's something else, too. If you're going to undertake a creative project that requires working closely with other people, you must accept that collaboration brings complications. Other people have so much to recommend them. They will help you see outside yourself. They will rally when you are flagging. They will offer ideas that push you to be better. But they will also require constant interaction and communication. Other people are your allies, in other words, but that alliance takes sustained effort to build. And you should be prepared for that, not irritated by it. As Andrew says, continuing his nautical metaphor, if you're sailing across the ocean and your goal is to avoid weather and waves, then why the hell are you sailing, he says. You have to embrace that sailing means that you can't control the elements and that there will be good days and bad days and that whatever comes, you will deal with it because your goal is to eventually get to the other side. You will not be able to control exactly how you get across. That's the game you decided to be in. If your goal is to make it easier and simpler, then don't get in the boat. Andrew's mental model addresses the fear that inevitably comes when your boat is tossed by a storm or stalls for lack of wind. If one looks at creativity as a resource that we continually draw upon to make something from nothing, then our fear stems from the need to make the non-existent come into being. As we've discussed, people often try to overcome this fear by simply repeating what has worked in the past. That leads nowhere. Or more accurately, it leads in the opposite direction of originality. The trick is to use our skills and knowledge not to duplicate, but to invent. In talking to directors and writers, I'm constantly inspired by the models they keep in their heads, each a unique mechanism they use to keep moving forward through adversity in pursuit of their goals. Pete Doctor compares directing to running through a long tunnel, having no idea how long it will last, but trusting that he will eventually come out intact at the other end. There's a really scary point in the middle where it's just dark, he says. There's no light from where you came in, and there's no light at the other end. All you can do is keep going. And then you start to see a little light and then a little more light, and then suddenly you're out in the bright sun. For Pete, this metaphor is a way of making that moment, the one in which you can't see your own hand in front of your face and you aren't sure you'll ever find your way out, a bit less frightening. Because your rational mind knows that tunnels have two ends, your emotional mind can be kept in check when pitch blackness descends in the confusing middle. Instead of collapsing into a nervous mess, the director, who has a clear internal model of what creativity is and the discomfort it requires, finds it easier to trust that light will shine again. The key is to never stop moving forward. Rich Moore, who directed Wreck-It Ralph for Disney Animation, envisions a slightly different scenario. He imagines himself in a maze while he's making a movie. Instead of running through willy-nilly, frantically searching for his way out, he places the tips of his fingers along one wall as he moves forward, 
slowing down here and there to assess and using his sense of touch to help him remember the route he's traveled so far. But he keeps moving so as not to panic. I loved mazes as a kid, Rich says, but you have to keep your head to find your way out. When I see a movie go south, I think to myself, well, they went nuts in the maze, they freaked out in there, and it fell apart. Bob Peterson, who has helped solve creative problems on almost every Pixar film, credits Andrew with giving him a model that has been invaluable to his career. On A Bug's Life, Bob says, Andrew compared making a movie to an archaeological dig. This adds yet another element to the picture, the idea that as you progress, your project is revealing itself to you. You're digging away, and you don't know what dinosaur you're digging for, Bob says. Then you reveal a little bit of it, and you may be digging in two different places at once, and you think what you have is one thing, but as you go farther and farther blindly digging, it starts revealing itself. Once you start getting a glimpse of it, you know how better to dig. Bob and Andrew have heard me voice my objection to this particular metaphor many times. As I've said, I believe that when we work on a movie, we are not uncovering an existing thing that had the bad luck to get buried under eons of sediment. We are creating something new. But they argue that the idea the movie is in there somewhere, think of David trapped in Michelangelo's block of marble, helps them stay on track and not lose hope. So while I started this chapter by insisting that what moviegoers see on the screen does not emerge fully formed from some visionary's brain, I have to allow for this idea. Having faith that the elements of a movie are all there for us to find often sustains us during the search. If this model resonates with you, just recognize that it has its pitfalls. Even Andrew warns that during your excavation, not every bone you unearth will necessarily belong to the skeleton you are trying to assemble. There may be the bones of several different dinosaurs or stories mixed up in your dig site. The temptation to use everything you find, even if it doesn't fit, is strong. After all, you probably worked hard to dig each element up but if you are discerning and rigorous in your analysis of each piece, if you compare it to the bits you found already to see if it's a match, your movie or project will reveal itself to you. After a while, it starts to tell me what's there, Andrew says. That's the place you're looking for, when the movie starts to tell you what it wants to be. Michael Arndt, who wrote Toy Story 3, and I have had an ongoing dialectic about the way he envisions his job. He compares writing a screenplay to climbing a mountain blindfolded. The first trick, he likes to say, is to find the mountain. In other words, you must feel your way, letting the mountain reveal itself to you. And notably, he says, climbing a mountain doesn't necessarily mean ascending. Sometimes you hike up for a while, feeling good, only to be forced back down into a crevasse before clawing your way out again. And there is no way of knowing where the crevasses will be. I like a lot about this metaphor, 
except for its implication that the mountain exists. Like Andrew's archaeological dig, it suggests that the artist must simply find the piece of art or the idea that is hidden from sight. It seems to me to contradict one of my central beliefs, that the future is unmade, and we must create it. If writing a screenplay is like climbing a mountain blindfolded, that implies that the goal is to see an existing mountain, while I believe it should be the goal of creative people to build their own mountain from scratch. But as I've talked to my colleagues who perform a variety of different jobs, I've come to respect that the most important thing about a mental model is that it enables whoever relies on it to get their job, whatever it is, done. The uncreated is a vast, empty space. This emptiness is so scary that most hold on to what they know, making minor adjustments to what they understand, unable to move on to something unknown. To enter that place of fear and to fill that empty space, we need all the help we can get. Michael is a screenwriter, which means he starts with a blank page. That requires charting the path from nothing to something, and imagining himself as a blindfolded mountain climber serves him, he says, because it girds him for the inevitable ups and downs of his job. I've now described several models, and the thing I believe they have in common is the search for an unseen destination. For land across the ocean, Andrew. For light at the end of the tunnel, Pete. For a way out of the maze, Rich. For the mountain itself, Michael. This makes sense for creative leaders who must guide so many people through the beats of a story or the production of a film. At the beginning, the director's or writer's destination is unclear, but he or she must forge ahead anyway. Producers, however, have a different, more logistical job. If directors must summon their creative vision and writers must impose structure and make a story sing, producers are there to keep things real. Their job is to make sure a project stays on track and on budget, so it makes perfect sense that their mental models differ markedly from those of their colleagues. Remember John Walker's upside-down pyramid? His mental model focuses not on climbing a hill or reaching a destination, but on balancing a multitude of competing demands. Other producers have their own ways of imagining their jobs, but two or one, they have this in common. Managing a multiplicity of forces not to mention hundreds of people with minds of their own, requires balance. Lindsay Collins, a producer who has worked with Andrew on several films, imagines herself as a chameleon who can change her colors depending on which constituency she's dealing with. The goal is not to be fake or curry favor, but to be whatever person is needed in the moment. In my job, sometimes I'm a leader... Sometimes I'm a follower, sometimes I run the room, and sometimes I say nothing and let the room run itself, she says. Adapting to your environment like a lizard that blends into whatever background it finds itself in is Lindsay's way of managing the competing and potentially crazy-making forces she encounters in her job. 
I'm a firm believer in the chaotic nature of the creative process needing to be chaotic. If we put too much structure on it, we will kill it. So there's a fine balance between providing some structure and safety, financial and emotional, but also letting it get messy and stay messy for a while. To do that, you need to assess each situation to see what's called for, and then you need to become what's called for. How does one make such an assessment? Lindsay jokes that she employs the Columbo effect, a reference to Peter Falk's iconic TV detective who appeared to bumble his way through a case even as he inevitably zeroed in on the culprit. When mediating between two groups who aren't communicating well, for example, Lindsay feigns confusion. You say, you know, maybe it's just me, but I don't understand. I'm sorry I'm slowing you down here with all my silly questions, but could you just explain to me one more time what that means? Just break it down for me like I'm a two-year-old. Good producers and good managers don't dictate from on high. They reach out, they listen, they wrangle, coax, and cajole. And their mental models of their jobs reflect that. Catherine Serafian, another Pixar producer, credits the clinical psychologist Tybee Collar with giving her a helpful way of visualizing her role. One of Collar's big teachings is about meeting people where they are, Catherine says, referring to what Collar calls the process communication model, which compares being a manager to taking the elevator from floor to floor in a big building. It makes sense to look at every personality as a condominium, Catherine says. People live on different floors and enjoy different views. Those on the upper floors may sit out on their balconies, those on the ground floor may lounge on their patios. Regardless, to communicate effectively with them all, you must meet them where they live. The most talented members of Pixar's workforce, whether they're directors, producers, production staff, artists, whatever, are able to take the elevator to whatever floor and meet each person based on what they need in the moment and how they like to communicate. One person may need to spew and vent for 20 minutes about why something doesn't look right before we can move in and focus on the details. Another person may be all about, I can't make these deadlines unless you give me this particular thing that I need. I always think of my job as moving between floors up and down all day long. When she's not imagining herself in an elevator, Catherine pretends she's a shepherd guiding a flock of sheep. Like Lindsay, she spends some time assessing the situation, figuring out the best way to guide her flock. I'm going to lose a few sheep over the hill, and I have to collect them, she says. I'm going to have to run to the front at times, and I'm going to have to stay back at times— and somewhere in the middle of the flock, there's going to be a bunch of stuff going on that I can't even see. And while I'm looking for the sheep that are lost, something else is going to happen that I'm not aiming my attention at. Also, I'm not entirely sure where we're going. Over the hill? Back to the barn? Eventually I know we will get there, but it can be very, very slow. 
You know, a car crosses the road and the sheep are all in the way. I'm looking at my watch going, oh my God, sheep, move already. But the sheep are going to move how they move. And we can try to control them as best we can. But what we really want to do is pay attention to the general direction they're heading and try to steer a little bit. Notice how each of these models contains so many of the themes we've talked about so far. The need to keep fear in its place, the need for balance, the need to make decisions, but also to admit fallibility, and the need to feel that progress is being made. What's important, I think, as you construct the mental model that works best for you is to be thoughtful about the problems it is helping you to solve. I've always been intrigued, for example, by the way that many people use the analogy of a train to describe their companies. Massive and powerful, the train moves inexorably down the track, over mountains and across vast plains, through the densest fog and darkest night. When things go wrong... We talk of getting derailed and of experiencing a train wreck. And I've heard people refer to Pixar's production group as a finely tuned locomotive that they would love the chance to drive. What interests me is the number of people who believe that they have the ability to drive the train and who think that this is the power position, that driving the train is the way to shape their company's futures. The truth is, it's not. Driving the train doesn't set its course. The real job is laying the track. I am constantly rethinking my own models for how to deal with uncertainty and change and how to enable people. At Lucasfilm, I had the image of riding bareback on a herd of wild horses, some of them faster than others, trying to keep steady. Other times, I've imagined my feet on either side of one of those balance boards that moves atop a cylindrical roller. No matter what image I come up with, questions remain. How do we keep from veering too far to one side or another? How do we follow our carefully laid plans yet remain open to ideas that are not our own? Over time, with new experiences, my model has continued to evolve and is still evolving even as I write this book. One model that has been extremely helpful to me I found completely by accident. It came from the study of mindfulness, which has attracted a lot of attention in recent years, both in academia and in business. Those who write about it focus on how it helps people reduce stress in their lives and direct their attention. But for me... It has also helped clarify my thinking about how groups of creative people work best together. Several summers ago, my wife Susan gave me a gift that led to this insight. Sensing that I needed a break, she arranged for me to attend a silent meditation retreat at the Shambhala Mountain Center in Red Feather Lakes, Colorado. The week-long immersion was open to beginners, but of the 70 people there... I was the only one who'd never meditated. For me, the thought of spending several days in silence seemed unimaginable, even weird. I was intrigued and sort of bumbling along when two days into it, we went into full silence. 
I wasn't sure what to do. The voice in my head chattered continuously, and I wasn't sure how to process it. On the third day, with my mind abuzz from all the non-speaking I was doing, I almost bailed out. Most people have heard of the Eastern teaching that it is important to exist in the moment. It can be hard to train yourself to observe what is right now and not to bog down in thoughts of what was and what will be, but the philosophical teaching that underlies that idea, the reason that staying in the moment is so vital, is equally important. Everything is changing, all the time, and you can't stop it, and your attempts to stop it actually put you in a bad place. It causes pain, but we don't seem to learn from it. Worse than that, resisting change robs you of your beginner's mind, your openness to the new. At the Shambhala Mountain Center that summer, I didn't bail. Even though the terminology was alien to me, it resonated with many of the issues I spent so much time thinking about at Pixar. Control, change, randomness, trust, consequences. The search for a clear mind is one of the fundamental goals of creative people, but the route each one of us travels to get there is unmarked. For me, a man who has always valued introspection, silence was a path I hadn't tried before. I've gone on a silent retreat every year since, and in addition to benefiting personally, I have done a lot of thinking about the management implications of mindfulness. If you are mindful, you are able to focus on the problem at hand without getting caught up in plans or processes. Mindfulness helps us accept the fleeting and subjective nature of our thoughts to make peace with what we cannot control. Most important, it allows us to remain open to new ideas and to deal with our problems squarely. Some people make the mistake of thinking that they are being mindful because they are focusing diligently on problems. But if they are doing so while subconsciously bound up with their worries and expectations, with no awareness that they can't see clearly or that others may know more, they aren't open at all. Similarly, within organizations, groups often hold so tightly to plans and past practices that they are not open to seeing what is changing in front of them. My thinking about this was enriched further when I happened upon a podcast of a talk given in 2011 at an annual event called the Buddhist Geeks Conference. There, a woman named Kelly McGonigal delivered a talk called what Science Can Teach Us About Practice. McGonigal, who teaches at Stanford University, discussed how recent studies of the brain's inner workings proved that the practice of meditation can lessen human suffering, not just the existential angst kind of suffering, which is bad enough, but actual physical pain. First, she talked about a study done at the University of Montreal in 2010 in which two groups, one made up of experienced Zen meditators, the other of non-meditators, were given the exact same type of pain experience, a thermal heat source strapped to one calf. They were hooked up to monitors that tracked which areas of the brain were stimulated. 
What researchers later discovered by looking at the brain imaging was that even though the experienced meditators weren't actively meditating in the course of the experiment, their threshold for pain was much higher than the non-meditators. The meditators' brains were paying attention to the pain, McGonagall explained, but because they knew how to turn off the inner chatter, the running commentary our untrained brains or monkey minds so happily serve up, they were better able to tolerate pain than those who did not practice meditation. Next, McGonagall cited a similar study done at Wake Forest University that focused on a group of brand-new meditators who'd undergone only four days of training. When they were brought into the laboratory and given the same pain test, some were able to tolerate greater levels of pain than others. Why? The temptation might be to surmise that these people were simply quick studies in the art of meditation, that they were better at it than others. Brain imagery showed, however, that in fact their minds were doing the opposite of what experienced meditators' brains do. Instead of paying attention to the moment they were in, McGonagall said, they were inhibiting sensory information, somehow shifting their attention to ignore what was happening in the present moment, and that was giving rise to less suffering, inhibiting awareness rather than carefully attending to it. I found this fascinating and analogous to behavior I'd witnessed as a manager. McGonagall was talking about the brain's tendency to suppress problems instead of facing them head-on. What makes this even more difficult is that the people who were suppressing thought that they were doing the same thing as the people who were addressing the problem. It is sobering to think that in trying to be mindful, some of us accidentally end up being exactly the opposite. We deflect and ignore. And for a while, at least, this behavior can even yield good results. But in the experiments McGonagall cited, people who'd made a practice of becoming mindful didn't ignore the problem at hand, in this case, the painful heat source strapped to their legs. They saw and felt it for what it was, but quieted their reaction to it, the brain's natural tendency to amplify by overthinking, and thus coped much better. This model of paying attention to what is in front of you, not hanging on too tightly to the past or the future, has proved immensely useful to me as I have tried to sort out organizational issues and to dissuade my colleagues from clinging to processes or plans that have outlived their usefulness. Likewise, the notion of acknowledging problems rather than putting in place rules that seek to suppress them has meaning to me. Ultimately, it doesn't matter if your model is different than mine. Upside-down pyramid or invisible mountain, stampeding horses or meandering sheep, what's essential is that each of us struggles to build a framework to help us be open to making something new. The models in our heads embolden us as we whistle through the dark. Not only that, they enable us to do the exhilarating and difficult work of navigating the unknown. Part 4. Testing What We Know Chapter 12. A New Challenge 
I'm thinking about selling Pixar to Disney, Steve said. To say that John and I were surprised doesn't really begin to capture it. Your what? We responded in unison. It was October 2005, and we'd just arrived at Steve's house in Palo Alto, where he lived with his wife and his three youngest kids. He'd invited us over for dinner, but suddenly neither John nor I had much of an appetite. Just 18 months before, after many fruitful years together, Disney and Pixar had had a very public falling out. Steve and Disney's chairman and CEO at the time, Michael Eisner, had abruptly halted discussions to renew our partnership agreement, and there were bad feelings all around. Specifically, we were rankled by Eisner's announcement of a new division within Disney Animation called Circle 7, which he'd created to exercise the studio's right to make sequels to our films without our input. This was hardball, an attempt to force our hand by wrenching control of our characters away from the people who'd created them. For John, it was almost as if Eisner were trying to kidnap his children. He loved Woody, Buzz, Slinky Dog, Rex, and the rest like he loved his own five sons and was heartbroken at the thought that he couldn't protect them. Now, Steve was thinking of joining forces with the company that had done this to him? In retrospect, I should say that I'd had inklings that something major might be afoot. I knew that even when Steve and Michael's relationship was at its worst, Steve still held the rest of Disney in high regard. For example, even when he didn't agree with a proposal from Disney's marketing folks, he would remind us privately that they knew more about that than he did. And Steve felt that Disney's marketing prowess, its mastery of consumer products, and its theme parks had always made it the preferred partner for Pixar, hands down. By the time Steve floated the idea of selling Pixar with John and me, I also knew that a lot had changed at Disney. Eisner was out, for one thing, having been replaced by Bob Iger. And one of Bob's first acts as CEO had been to reach out to Steve in an effort to mend fences. They'd then struck a deal to make the top shows on ABC available on iTunes. And largely because of this, Steve trusted Bob. To Steve, that deal demonstrated two things. Iger was a man of action, and he was willing to buck the knee-jerk, industry-wide trend to oppose distribution of entertainment content on the Internet. The iTunes deal took about ten days to complete. Iger didn't let entrenched forces get in the way. But the fact remained. Circle 7 was still up and running and still preparing to put Toy Story 3 into production without any input from us. As John and I sat there trying to get our heads around a merger, Steve began pacing around his living room, laying out the reasons that it made sense. He'd studied all the angles, of course. Number one, Pixar needed a marketing and distribution partner to get its movies into theaters around the world. Okay, that we knew already. 
Number two, Steve felt that a merger would help Pixar have more of a creative impact by allowing it to play on a bigger, sturdier stage. Right now, Pixar is a yacht, he said. But a merger will put us on a giant ocean liner where big waves and poor weather won't affect us as much. We'll be protected. At the end of his pitch, Steve looked us in the eye and assured us that he would not go forward with the sale unless he had both of our blessings. But he asked us to do him a favor before we made any decisions. Get to know Bob Iger, he said. That's all I ask. He's a good man. A few months later, in January of 2006, the deal went through. But Walt Disney Company's acquisition of Pixar Animation Studios for $7.4 billion was not your typical merger. Steve had made sure of that. He proposed that John and I be put in charge of both Pixar and Disney Animation. I'd be president and John chief creative officer because he thought, and Bob agreed, that if the leadership of the two studios were separate, an unhealthy competition would emerge that would eventually drag both studios down. He also thought, frankly, that making us the stewards of both entities would guarantee that Pixar's traditions didn't get overtaken by those of the much larger corporation, the Walt Disney Company. The result was that John and I suddenly had the rare opportunity to take the ideas we'd honed over decades at Pixar and test them in another context. Would our theories about the necessity of candor, fearlessness, and self-awareness bear out in this new environment? Or were they peculiar to our own smaller shop? Figuring out the answers, not to mention how to manage two very different companies in a way that benefited both, would fall largely to John and me. John has always thought of Pixar as a studio full of pioneers who pride themselves on having invented a new art form while always aspiring to the highest level of storytelling. Disney Animation, by contrast, is a studio with a grand heritage. It's the gold standard of animation excellence. Its employees yearn to make movies that are worthy of Walt, as good as those he made, but resonant in our time. To be honest, John and I had no idea whether our theories about how to manage creative people would hold up there. The challenge was to keep Pixar healthy while making Disney animation great again. This chapter is largely devoted to some of the ways we went about that, and it goes to the heart of one of the main reasons I wrote this book. You'll recall that my new goal after the completion of Toy Story was to figure out how to make a sustainable creative environment. Pixar's joining with Disney was our chance to prove, to ourselves if not anyone else, that what we'd created at Pixar could work outside of Pixar. Both the run-up to the acquisition and its execution provided the ultimate case study and, as such, it was enormously exciting to be a part of. First, I'll talk about how the merger came to pass in the first place, because I believe we did several things in the very early stages that put our partnership on a strong footing. Get to know Bob Iger, 
Steve had said. So a few weeks later, I did. We met for dinner near the Disney Studios in Burbank, and I liked him immediately. The first thing he did was tell me a story. A month earlier, at the opening of Hong Kong Disneyland, he'd had an epiphany. It happened as he was watching a parade of characters trooping by. Donald Duck, Mickey Mouse, Snow White, Ariel, and Buzz Lightyear and Woody. It occurred to me that the only classic characters that had been created in the past ten years were Pixar characters, Bob said. He told me that while the Walt Disney Company had many interests, from theme parks to cruise ships to consumer products to live-action films, animation would always be its lifeblood, and he was determined to see that part of the business rise again. One thing that struck me about Bob was that he preferred asking questions to holding forth, and his queries were incisive and straightforward. Something unusual had been built at Pixar, he said, and he wanted to understand it. For the first time in all the years that Pixar and Disney had worked together, someone from Disney was asking what we were doing that made our company different. Bob had already been through two major acquisitions in his career as an executive, when Capital Cities Communications bought the American Broadcasting Company in 1985 and when Disney bought Cap Cities ABC in 1996. One, he said, was a good experience and the other a negative one, so he knew firsthand how destructive it could be when one culture was allowed to dominate the other in a merger. Should the Pixar acquisition go forward, he assured me, he was going to work hard not to let that happen. His agenda was clear, reviving Disney animation while also preserving Pixar's autonomy. A few days later, John had dinner with Bob, and afterward we sat down to compare notes. John agreed that Bob seemed to share our core values, but he was worried about the acquisition destroying what we held most dear a culture of candor and freedom and the kind of constructive self-criticism that allowed our people and the movies they made to evolve into their best selves. John often likens the Pixar culture to a living organism. It's like we found a way, he once told me, to grow life on a planet that had never supported it before, and he didn't want anything to threaten its existence. We believed Bob had good intentions, but were wary of the larger company's ability, even inadvertently, to roll over us. Still, Bob had reassured John by indicating he wanted to work together to make sure that didn't happen. The deal was going to be expensive, he told us, and in lobbying for it with the Disney board, he was putting his own reputation on the line. Why, Bob asked, would he endanger the value of the asset Disney was buying? We had come to the fork in the road. A decision had to be made, and there were major factors to consider. What would the relationship between the studios really be? Could Pixar and Disney animation flourish independent of one another, separate but equal? In mid-November 2005, 
John, Steve, and I met for dinner at one of Steve's favorite Japanese restaurants in San Francisco. As we discussed the challenges of the merger, Steve told a story. Twenty years before, in the early 1980s, Apple was developing two personal computers, the Macintosh and the Lisa, and Steve was asked to preside over the Lisa division. It was a job he didn't want, and he admitted that he didn't handle it well. Instead of inspiring the Lisa team, he basically told them that they had already lost out to the Mac team. In other words, that their work was never going to pay off. He'd effectively crushed their spirits, he told us, and that had been wrong. Should this merger happen, he continued, what we have to do is to not make people at Disney Animation feel like they've lost. We have to make them feel good about themselves. The fact that John and I had such affection for Disney would certainly help with that. We had both spent our lives trying to live up to Walt Disney's artistic ideals, so the thought of walking through the doors of Disney Animation, entrusted with the mission of reinvigorating its people and helping them return to greatness, felt daunting but also worthy and important. By the end of dinner, the three of us were in agreement. The future of Pixar, of Disney, and of animation itself would be brighter if we joined forces. John and I understood that this news would come as a shock to our colleagues at Pixar. We figured that everybody would feel exactly the same as we did when Steve first floated the idea in his living room, John recalls. Before any official announcement, then, we needed to do everything we could to ensure that people felt safe and that we had taken steps to prevent change being made for the wrong reasons. With Iger's blessing, then, we set about drafting a document that came to be known as the Five-Year Social Compact. This seven-page, single-spaced list was an enumeration of all the things that had to remain the same at Pixar should the merger go through. The document's 59 bullet points addressed many topics you might expect. Compensation, HR policies, vacation, and benefits. Item number one ensured that Pixar's executive team could still reward employees with bonuses, as Pixar has always done, once a film's box office receipts reached a certain benchmark. Others were strictly related to personal expression. Number 11, for example, stated that Pixar employees must remain free to exercise their creative freedom with their titles and names on their business cards. Number 33 ensured that Pixar's people could continue to exert personal cube-slash-office-slash-space decorating to reflect persons' individuality. Some sought to preserve popular company rituals. Number 12. Event parties, holiday, wrap, various events are prevalent at Pixar. Various holiday parties, end-of-film parties, the annual car show, the paper airplane contest, Cinco de Mayo festivities, and the summer barbecue, to name a few. Some sought to ensure the survival of Pixar's egalitarian ethos. Number 29. No assigned parking for any employee, including executives. All spaces are first come, first served.
We couldn't say for sure that these items we sought to safeguard were what had propelled us to such success, but we felt strongly about them and we were going to work hard to prevent them from changing. We were different, and since we believe being different helps us maintain our identity, we wanted to remain that way. There was one other important factor that shaped the deal that was not reported at the time. It related to the issue of trust. As we were finalizing the merger, Disney's board of directors didn't like the fact that key Pixar talent was not under contract. If Disney bought us and then John or I or certain other leaders left the company they felt, it would be a disaster. So they asked that we all sign contracts before the deal went through. We declined. It is a tenet of the Pixar culture that people should work there because they want to, not because a contract requires them to. And as a result, no one at Pixar was under contract. But even though this rejection was based on a core belief, it made the deal feel questionable for Disney. On the Pixar side, meanwhile, there was considerable concern that the Disney bureaucracy would inadvertently destroy what we had built. Both sides then felt at considerable risk. The result, though, was that at the heart of this merger was an understanding that both companies had to trust each other. Each side felt a personal obligation to live up to the intent of the agreement, and I believe this was the ideal way to begin our relationship. On the day of the sale, Bob flew up to Pixar's headquarters in Emeryville, near Oakland, for the announcement, and once the documents were signed and the stock exchanges were notified, Steve, John, and I walked out onto a stage at the far end of Pixar's atrium and greeted all 800 of our employees. This was a crucial moment for the company, and we wanted our colleagues to understand its genesis and how the deal would work. One by one, John, Steve, and I spoke about the thinking behind the deal, how Pixar needed a strong partner, how this was a positive step in our evolution, and how determined we were, despite the changes, to protect our culture. Looking out into the faces of our colleagues, I could see that they were upset, as we knew they would be. We, too, were emotional. We loved our colleagues and the company they'd built, and we knew how big a change we were setting in motion. We welcomed Bob onto the stage then, and our people greeted him with a warmth that made me proud. Bob told the Pixar staff exactly what he told us, that he loved the work we did, first of all, but also that he'd been through one bad merger and one good one in his life, and he was determined to do this right. Disney Animation needs help, so I have two options, he said. One, to leave the place in the hands of the people who are already in charge, or two, to go to people who I trust who have a proven track record of making great stories and characters that people love. That's Pixar. I promise you that the culture of Pixar will be protected. Later, in an hour-long conference call with analysts, Steve and Bob moved to make good on that promise. They announced that Circle 7 would be shut down. We feel very strongly, Steve said, 
that if the sequels are going to be made, we want the people who were involved in the original films involved. It was the end of the day before John, Steve, and I had a chance to take a breath, heading upstairs and ducking into my office. The minute the door shut behind us, Steve put his arms around us and began to cry. Tears of pride and relief, and frankly, love. He had succeeded in providing Pixar, the company he'd helped turn from a struggling hardware supplier into an animation powerhouse, with the two things it needed to endure, a worthy corporate partner in Disney and, in Bob, a genuine advocate. The next morning, John and I flew to Disney headquarters in Burbank. There were hands to shake and executives to meet, but our main purpose that day was to introduce ourselves to the 800 men and women who worked at Disney Animation and to assure them that we came in peace. At three o'clock, we walked over to Soundstage 7 on the Disney back lot, a cavernous space that was packed with animation employees standing shoulder to shoulder. Bob spoke first. He said that the acquisition of Pixar should not be seen as a sign of disrespect to Disney's ranks, but rather as proof of how deeply he loved animation and saw it as Disney's core business. When it was my turn to speak, I kept it brief. I told my new colleagues that a company could only be great if its employees were willing to speak their minds. From that day forward, I said, every Disney animation employee should feel free to talk to any colleague, regardless of position, and not be afraid of repercussions. This was a central tenet at Pixar, though I was quick to add that this would be one of the few times that I would import an idea from Emeryville without discussing it with them first. I want you all to know, I do not want Disney Animation to be a clone of Pixar, I said. I was eager to turn the microphone over to John, the kindred spirit whom so many of the artists in the room already revered. I sensed that John's presence would reassure them about the transition, and I was right. John gave an impassioned speech about the importance of story and character development, and how both got better when artists and filmmakers worked together in a culture of mutual respect. He talked about what it meant to be a director-driven animation company that made movies that sprung from people's hearts, and connected in a real way with audiences. Judging by how the Disney employees were cheering, I gathered that, just as Steve had requested, John and I didn't make them feel like they'd lost the battle. Years later, I would ask the director, Nathan Greeno, who had been at Disney Animation for a decade when we arrived, what was going through his mind that morning when the merger was announced. Here's what I thought, he told me. I thought, maybe now the Disney I wanted to work for when I was a kid will come back. My first day in Burbank, I arrived at Disney Animation before 8 in the morning. I wanted to walk the halls before anyone else got there, just to get the lay of the land. I arranged to meet Disney's facilities manager, Chris Hibbler, for a tour. We started in the basement, and the first thing I noticed was the strange lack of personal items on employees' desks. At Pixar, 
People's work areas are virtual shrines to individuality, decorated, adorned, modified in ways that express the quirks and passions of the person who occupies that space. But here the desks were sterile, cookie-cutter, utterly without personality. When I first mentioned this to Chris, he muttered something evasive and kept moving. It was so stark that I brought it up again a few minutes later, and again he demurred. As we headed up the stairs into the heart of the building, I turned and asked Chris directly why it was that people in such a creative environment didn't personalize any part of their work areas. Was there a policy against it? The place looked, I said, as if no one spent any time there. At this point, Chris stopped and faced me. In anticipation of my arrival, he confided, everybody had been told to clean off their desks in order to make a good first impression. This was an early indication of how much work lay ahead of us. For me, the alarming thing wasn't the lack of tchotchkes, it was the pervasive sense of alienation and fear that the total lack of individuality represented. There seemed to be undue emphasis put on preventing errors. Even when it came to something as small as office decor, no one dared to put themselves out there or to make a mistake. That sense of alienation was also reflected in the design of the building itself. Its layout seemed to impede the collaboration and exchange of ideas that Steve, John, and I believed was so fundamental to creative work. Employees were spread out over four floors, which made it a chore to drop in on one another. The bottom two floors were dungeon-like, with dreary, dropped ceilings, very few windows, and almost no natural light. Instead of inspiring and fostering creativity, it could hardly have felt more stifling and isolating. Upstairs, on the top floor, the executive suite was set off by an imposing portal that discouraged entry, creating a sort of gated community kind of vibe. To put it simply, it struck me as a lousy work environment. One of our most pressing orders of business, then, would be some basic remodeling. First, we turned the off-putting executive suite on the top floor into two spacious story rooms where filmmakers could gather to brainstorm about their films. John and I put our offices on the second floor, right in the middle of things, and removed the secretarial cubicles that had functioned as a sort of obstacle to access— Instead, most secretaries got their own offices. John and I made a point of leaving the shades on our office windows open so that people could see us and we could see them. Our goal, in our words and our actions, was to communicate transparency. Instead of a portal separating us from them, we installed a carpet whose brightly colored panels, like lanes of a road, guided people toward our offices, not away from them. We ripped out several walls to create a central gathering place right outside our doors, complete with a new coffee and snack bar. These may sound like symbolic or even superficial touches, but the messages they sent set the stage for some major organizational changes. 
and there were many more to come. I told you in Chapter 10 how we eliminated the oversight group that was charged with poring over production reports to make sure that films were progressing as expected, but really just ended up eroding staff morale. Unfortunately, that group was just one of several hierarchical mechanisms that were impeding creativity at Disney Animation. We tried as best we could to take each of them on, but at first, I'll admit it felt like an uphill climb. Since we didn't know much of anything about the people, the directors, or the projects at Disney, we had to do a quick audit. John and I asked to be briefed on each film that was underway, and I interviewed every one of the studio's managers and leaders, producers and directors. In truth, I couldn't deduce much from those interviews, but they weren't wasted time. Since John and I were perceived as the new sheriffs in town, it was good to prove that I was human just by sitting there talking. Overall, we knew that the studio's way of thinking about films wasn't working, but we didn't know if that was because its leaders lacked ability or if they were just trained poorly. We had to start by assuming that they'd inherited bad practices and that it was our job to reteach them. This led us to look for people who were willing to grow and learn, but this is the kind of thing that you can't ascertain quickly and there were about 800 people to assess. Nonetheless, we moved forward with a strategy. We needed to create a version of the Brain Trust and teach the studio's people how to work within it. While the directors liked each other, each movie at Disney had been set up to compete for resources, so they were not bonded as a group. In order to create a healthy feedback loop, we'd have to change that. We had to figure out who the actual leaders within the studio were. That is, not assume the people in the biggest offices were leading. It was clear that there was internal contention between productions and between technical groups. As far as I could tell, the contentiousness grew out of misconceptions rather than anything substantive. We needed to fix that. We made the decision early on that we would keep Pixar and Disney Animation completely separate. This was a critical decision that was not obvious to most people. Most people assumed that Pixar would do 3D movies and Disney would do 2D, or they assumed that we would merge the two studios or mandate that Disney use the Pixar tools. But the key to us was separation. John and I began shuttling back and forth at least once a week from Emeryville to Burbank. At first, Pixar's CFO joined us to help think through and implement procedural changes, and one of our technical leaders helped Disney reform its technical group. Other than that, we did not allow either studio to do any production work for the other. With these strategies in place, we could dive into figuring out what to do. One top executive at Disney got my attention right away by telling me that he didn't know why Disney had bought Pixar in the first place. Apparently a lover of sports analogies, he told me that Disney animation was on the one-yard line ready to score. 
He felt Disney was on the verge of fixing its own problems and finally ending its 16-year fallow period without a single number one film. I liked this guy's moxie and his willingness to push back, but I told him that if he were to continue at Disney, he needed to figure out why, in fact, Disney was not on the one-yard line, not about to score, and not about to fix its own problems. This executive was smart, but over time I realized that to ask him to help dismantle a culture he had built was too much, so I had to let him go. He was so fixated on existing processes and the notion of being right that he couldn't see how flawed his thinking was. In the end, the person I turned to for leadership was the person many assumed I would let go right off the bat, the head of Circle 7, Andrew Milstein. Most people thought that John and I would automatically view anybody associated with those Pixar sequels as tainted, but in truth, that didn't even occur to us. The Circle 7 people had nothing to do with the decision to make sequels to Pixar films. They were just hired to do a job. When I sat down with him, Andrew struck me as thoughtful and eager to understand the new direction we were headed in. Our filmmakers had lost their voices, he told me, summing up the problem. It wasn't that they had no desire to express themselves, but there was an imbalance of forces in the organization, not just within it, but between it and the rest of the corporation, that diminished the validity of the creative voice. The balance was gone. It's easy to see that Andrew spoke my language. This was someone I could work with. Eventually, we'd make him general manager of the studio. Another lucky break for us was that our head of human resources at Disney Animation was Anne LeCam. Even though she was steeped in the old ways of doing things, Anne had an intellectual curiosity and a willingness to remake the animation studio in a different image. She became my guide to the inner workings of Disney while I encouraged her to think in new ways about her job. For example, not long after I arrived, she sat down in my office and presented me with a two-year plan that laid out exactly how we should manage various staffing issues going forward. The document was specific about targets we would reach and when we would reach them. It was meticulous. She'd spent two months preparing it. So I was gentle when I told her it wasn't what I wanted. To show her what I wanted, I drew a pyramid on a piece of paper. What you have done in this report is to assert that in two years we will be here, I said, putting my pencil lead at the top of the pyramid. Once you assert that, though, it's human nature that you will focus only on making it come true. You will stop thinking about other possibilities. You will narrow your thinking and defend this plan because your name will be on it and you will feel responsible. Then I started drawing lines on the pyramid to show how I'd prefer she approach it. The first line I drew represented where we would aim to go in three months. The next one represented where we might be in three more, and you'll note that it didn't stay within the boundaries of Anne's two-year plan. Chances are, I said, 
we would end up somewhere other than the top of the pyramid she'd imagined, and that was as it should be. Instead of setting forth a perfect route to achieving future goals and sticking to it unwaveringly, I wanted Anne to be open to readjusting along the way, to remaining flexible, to accepting that we would be making it up as we go. Not only did she intuitively grasp what I was talking about, she also soon undertook a painful reorganization of her own group to align it with the new way of thinking. Some things that needed fixing at the studio were glaringly obvious. For example, as we talked to Disney directors, we discovered that they were used to receiving three sets of notes on their films. One came from the studio's development department, another from the head of the studio, and a third from Michael Eisner himself. The notes were not, in fact, notes. They were mandatory, delivered as a list with boxes next to each item, boxes that had to be checked as each note was executed. Even worse, none of the people who were giving these notes had ever made a film before, and the three sets of notes often conflicted with one another, creating a sort of schizophrenic quality to the feedback. This concept, completely counter to what we believed and practiced at Pixar, could only result in an inferior product, so we made an announcement. From that day forward, there would be no more mandatory notes. Disney Animation's directors needed a feedback system that worked, so we immediately set about helping them create their own version of the Brain Trust, a safe arena in which to solicit and interpret candid responses to developing projects. This was made easier by the fact that they already liked and trusted each other. Even before our arrival, we were told, they'd formed their own under-the-radar group called the Story Trust, but the lack of management understanding for that concept had prevented it from evolving into a coherent forum. As soon as possible, we flew about a dozen Disney directors and story people up to Pixar to observe a brain trust session about Brad Bird's Ratatouille. However, John and I told them they were only allowed to observe, not participate. We wanted them to be flies on the wall, to see how different things could be when people felt free to be candid and when notes were offered in the spirit of helpfulness rather than derision. The next day, several Pixar directors, writers, and editors accompanied the Disney crew back down to Burbank to observe a story trust meeting on a film in the works there called Meet the Robinsons. Here, too, we insisted that the Pixar team observe quietly, saying nothing. I thought I noticed a bit more ease in the room that day, as if the Disney people were cautiously feeling for the limits of their new freedom, and the producer of the film later told me it was the most constructive note session she had ever seen at Disney. Still, both John and I sensed that while everyone embraced the idea of organized candor on an intellectual level and could begin to approximate it when instructed, it would be a while before it came naturally. A key moment in this evolution came in the fall of 2006, 
nine months after the merger, at a story trust meeting in Burbank. It happened after a fairly awful screening of American Dog, a film structured around a famous and pampered canine actor, think Rin Tin Tin, who believed that he was the superhero character he played on TV. When he found himself stranded in the desert, he had to face for the first time how his tidy, scripted life had not prepared him for reality, that he, in fact, had no special powers. That was all well and good, but somewhere along the way, the plot had also come to include a radioactive, cookie-selling Girl Scout zombie serial killer. I'm all for quirky ideas, but this one had metastasized. The movie was still finding its way, to say the least, so John started off the meeting, as he often does, by focusing on the things he liked about it. He also indicated he saw some problems, but he wanted to give the Disney folks the chance to take the lead on those. So instead of digging in and getting too specific, he threw the meeting open to the floor. Throughout the meeting, the comments stayed at a superficial level, remaining largely upbeat. Judging by the commentary, you would have never known the film was in disarray. Afterward, one of the Disney directors confided to me that many people in the room had major reservations about the film, but didn't say what they thought because John had kicked things off so positively. Taking their cues from him, they didn't want to go against what they thought he liked. Not trusting their own instincts, they held back. John and I immediately arranged a dinner with the directors and told them that if they ever resorted to that kind of thinking again, we'd be finished as a studio. Disney animation was sort of like a dog that had been beaten again and again, Byron Howard, the director, told me when I asked him to describe the mindset back then. The crew wanted to succeed, but they were afraid of pouring their hearts into something that wasn't going to succeed. You could feel that fear. And in notes meetings, everyone was so afraid of hurting someone's feelings that they held back. We had to learn that we weren't attacking the person, we were attacking the project. Only then could we create a crucible that boils away everything that's not working and leaves the strongest framework. Earning trust takes time. There's no shortcut to understanding that we really do rise and fall together. Without vigilant coaching, pulling people aside who didn't speak their minds in a particular meeting, say, or encouraging those who seem eternally hesitant to jump into the fray, our progress could have easily stalled. Telling the truth isn't easy. But I can say that today, Disney's story trust is made up of individuals who understand not only that they must do the difficult work of leveling with one another, but how to do it better. In those first months, we also moved to bolster trust within the studio in another way. Just as we had refused to sign employment contracts, we now moved to eliminate contracts for everyone. At first, many people thought the move was an attempt to wrest power away from the employees and give them less security. In fact, my feeling about employment contracts is that they hurt the employee and the employer. 
the contracts in question were one-sided in favor of the studio, resulting in unexpected negative consequences. First and foremost, there was no longer any effective feedback between bosses and employees. If someone had a problem with the company, there wasn't much point in complaining because they were under contract. If someone didn't perform well, on the other hand, there was no point in confronting them about it. Their contract simply wouldn't be renewed, which might be the first time they heard about their need to improve. The whole system discouraged and devalued day-to-day -day communication and was culturally dysfunctional. But since everybody was used to it, they were blind to the problem. I wanted to break that cycle. I believed that it was our responsibility to make sure that Disney animation was a place that people would want to work. If our most talented people could leave, then we would have to be on our toes to keep them happy. When someone had a problem, we wanted it to be brought quickly to the surface, not to fester. Most people know that they don't get their way on everything, but it is very important that they know they are being dealt with straightforwardly and that they, too, will be heard. 